everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong. I'm your host and a combined adult and pediatric ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and console questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I want to thank everyone who's been listening to this podcast so far. Many congrats to those who are finishing their training programs, or perhaps are just celebrating the halfway point like myself. I'm looking forward with Febrile and wanted to bring you guys in to tell you I've been really interested in building in series of episodes, potentially to where we're actually covering some mini ID related curriculums of sort and how to best do that. Um, my other hope and plan is to emphasize immunocompromised hosts and transplant recipients to give you an opportunity to hear about those topics more as well. This episode is going to kick off the first time we've had a collection of shows and what I'm going to call our Febrile HIV Summer Series entitled Fresh Start. Many new ID fellows are going to be starting in their general ID and HIV clinics, and fellows and other learners alike are probably going to be covering similar topics as the new academic year begins. And so I'm hoping that these episodes can complement and enhance your learning. The episodes are meant to emphasize some of the questions that arise surrounding new ART starts in a few different settings, an adult patient, a pregnant patient, in pediatrics, and a patient considering PrEP. We certainly cannot cover everything in a relatively short podcast and just a few episodes, but I hope that you can use this as a jumping off point, and maybe we can have some series delving into other topics in the future. We'll also have summaries with more details on some of the papers, then that'll be in the consult notes on the website. And as always, there will be graphics to hopefully reinforce some of the guidelines, recommendations, and things that we talk about on the show. So I want to welcome our first guest, Dr. Darcy Wooten. Darcy is a sixth-generation Californian and an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at the University of California, San Diego. She did her undergraduate studies in human virology at Stanford University before completing medical school and internal medicine residency training at UC San Francisco, UCSF. She also earned a Master of Science degree from UC Berkeley doing research on Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections. And she completed her ID fellowship at Harbor UCLA before joining the faculty at UCSD in 2014. Her clinical interests include HIV medicine and general ID. She serves as the ID Fellowship Program Director and as Course Director for the Clinical Foundations course for the first and second year medical students. She is a self-proclaimed medical educationist and med-ed enthusiast. Um, So thanks for coming to the show, Darcy. Uh, This series is going to be a new thing for us, but as everyone's favorite culture podcast, I still want to kick off the show by asking you to share a little piece of culture that brings you happiness. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And um, as you know, in the pandemic, it's been difficult to do things and go places. And I have um, a toddler. And so a lot of (laughs) what we've been doing is a sidewalk chalk, but I have no artistic talent whatsoever. So (laughs) I actually um, bought a couple of books teaching you how to draw. And I've been sort of learning how to draw a lot of Disney and cartoon characters um, on sidewalk chalk. And that's been really fun for both me and my daughter and gets us outside. So 
Yes, I love it. And the weather is now becoming beautiful outside. Yeah. Well, I guess where you are, the weather's pretty nice. It's all the time. true. When it's, you know, less than 68 degrees, we start complaining in San Diego. <laughs> so it's a rough life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so today we are actually in clinic and really the the console question is about a new diagnosis of HIV. And so our hope with this episode is to walk through what ID fellows or other learners need to know about that first visit when they a patient establishes care for a new diagnosis of HIV. Um, so there are a ton of resources that I will put links to that we might refer to. Um, but really, we're just trying to get inside your head and kind of think through what's important when we see this patient. And so today, we have a 26-year-old previously healthy female. Uh, she was found to have a new diagnosis of HIV at the time of an STI screening check. We're not going to focus on the formal HIV diagnosis with definitions or testing algorithms, um, since we have a ton to cover. But I think I wanted to stop here first and see how you sort of broadly look at this visit and what are your goals Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, this first visit is a really important visit for this patient. You as the provider might never remember this visit again, but probably this patient will never forget this visit. So I think it is um, really important. And a couple of um, sort of general goals for all newly diagnosed patients. I think one of the first things that I think about is really, um, even outside of just me and the patient, is really trying to make the patient feel safe and welcomed um, when they come into the clinic. Um, many Many of our newly diagnosed patients and patients living with HIV tend to come from marginalized patient populations. So doing anything that can make the clinic feel safe and welcoming from, you know, having a rainbow flag on the wall to wearing a button that says, you know, ask me about my pronouns, um, all of that can be really helpful. And I think, you know, we're doing a lot of rapid or same day starts for our patients. So patients are newly diagnosed either on that day or just shortly there before and um, then come coming in to both establish care and get started on treatment. And so that really is kind of one of the main goals of getting a patient started on treatment that day. There are actually a lot of clinical as well as psychological benefits to that, um, but it takes a, a, a number of steps to get there. And so I really, when I sit down with a newly diagnosed patient, really start with asking questions and trying to understand what they know about HIV and kind of where they're coming from, uh, what they might have heard about, and, and maybe what um, conceptions or misconceptions they have. Um, one of the things I really try to emphasize and highlight is life expectancy um, and really, you know, hoping and helping people understand that patients living with HIV now um, are expected to live just as long as patients without HIV, um, especially when you control for things like comorbidities um, and being on antiretroviral therapy. And I, I really try and highlight that piece to kind of link to it's really critical to get you started on therapy um, and to keep you suppressed. Um, so that's kind of one of the first things that I talk about because I think patients have a lot of concern um, that, you know, are they going to live yeah. a normal and healthy life? Um, um, and then I go kind of into, you know, some of the basics about HIV, depending on what they know. Um, things that I like to highlight are that HIV is a chronic disease um, that can be managed very, very easily, oftentimes much easier than things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Um, but it does require patients at this point to take a pill every day. Um, we don't have a cure, but I 
tell patients that we're actively working for a cure. But this also helps to bring up the understanding and the concept that patients will be taking medication for their um, infection. Um, and then again, depending on sort of what their understanding is, I do a little bit of teaching on CD4 T cell count and kind of what these cells are and how they're um, attacked by HIV and how our goal is really to with medications, um, stop HIV from killing these cells and allow their um, number to increase so that their immune system is healthy and strong. Um, and I go over some of the numbers and the targets um, so that when, pati when patients look at their lab results, as they can do on many of the electronic portals, um, yeah. have an understanding. Um, with CD4 T cell counts in particular, they can really fluctuate from day to day, um, and patients will be like, my T-cell count dropped by 150 points, like there must be something wrong. Um, so yeah. I try and, you know, say not to worry, especially if their CD4 percentage is stable um, and they're vi virologically suppressed because even things like a respiratory illness can, can cause the absolute CD4 cell count to fluctuate quite a bit. Um, and then I, you know, of course, talk about HIV viral load, how it's the amount of HIV in the blood. And, and the goal with medication is to get that number to undetectable. At our center, that's less than 20. Um, and how medications can usually do that in a month or two, um, given how potent they are. Um, and I start to link this into um, the concept of U equals U or undetectable equals untransmittable. Um, and if patients don't know, explaining to them that once their virus is undetectable on the medication, they cannot transmit HIV to another person. And this is a really critical piece um, in terms of helping to decrease stigma. Um, patients have a lot of guilt and even self-stigma um, in terms of transmitting HIV to somebody else. And so this undetectable equals untransmittable is really an empowering piece of information that we have so much data and evidence for. Um, and then the last piece and kind of um, goal for the overall visit is to help the patient understand the clinic and how to access care. Um, even for me, I think the healthcare system is incredibly difficult to navigate. And so for somebody who may be like this patient hasn't had a lot of access with the healthcare system, helping them understand how our multidisciplinary clinic works. All of our patients meet with financial counselors to make sure that they have the appropriate coverage in place to get their care and their medications um, covered. And then letting patients know we have social workers, patient navigators who can help with housing resources, food, um, even transportation to clinic. Um, we have mental health providers in our clinic, which is amazing, Monday through Friday. Um, I actually highly recommend that all newly diagnosed patients see a counselor at least once. Um, and then I also highlight the role of our clinical pharmacist. So that kind of like summarizes the overall goal um, and kind of education and counseling that I provide at the first visit. Awesome. Um, and so we know that you're meeting the patient and you're getting some of the, what I could say, regular history. I thought that we could just touch on if there's any key components of the history that they're a little bit different, that you're trying to make sure that you don't miss to sort of help with um, this new diagnosis. Yeah, so of course we're gonna, you know, take our regular history the way that we learned about in medical school. Um, but I think some things that are unique that we might focus on, um, sort of an HIV specific history. You know, asking the patient have they ever been tested for HIV? When was their last negative test? Um, and what prompted them to get tested now? Um, I also ask patients where they think they might have gotten their infection from. Um, you can ask about, you know, a history of opportunistic infections or cancers. Um, 
what their you know lowest CD4 cell count was, what their baseline HIV viral load is. A lot of times patients won't necessarily know the answers to these questions or these are in the medical record. Um, I do try to sort of start open-endedly with respect to like opportunistic infections, um, but then I always you know follow that up with have you ever had meningitis, pneumonia, CMV or an infection in your eye, chronic diarrhea, things like that. Um, I remember asking a patient you know if they had any medical problems in the past and you know they had said no and then later on in the history you know this this event of cryptococcal meningitis came up so I <laughs> always it always happens yeah I always you know start open-endedly but then you know there are very specific things that I want to know about so I try and use that strategy in the history um, in terms of the rest of the history you know I think definitely looking and, and delving into a comprehensive psychiatric history is really important um, psychiatric disease is really prevalent in this patient population. Um, so I'll ask about, you know, any hospitalizations for, for psychiatric conditions, depression, suicidal ideation, and current, uh, including currently, um, you know, any suicide attempts, um, PTSD, trauma, sexual abuse history um, that's really prevalent in our patient population. And, and understanding that can be um, really important and can also sort of um, guide maybe how you manage the patient and what resources you link them to. Um, and then sort of somewhat related, you know, getting into the sexual history, I like to ask, you know, first about the patient themselves and, you know, what sex the patient was assigned at birth, what gender they currently identify as, and, you know, if it's appropriate, I let them know about our gender-affirming care clinic. Um, and then going into a detailed sexual history about practices, partners, pregnancy plans, things like that. Um, I will say, you know, a lot of these topics can be um, very sensitive and this is not a normal piece of human social interaction where the first time you're meeting somebody, you, you know, are asking them these very intimate, no pun intended, um, questions. Um, so sometimes you have to kind of read it. And of course you have to get the information you need to take care of the patient. Um, but you also really want to establish a strong and trusting relationship. And sometimes patients, um, just aren't ready to talk about certain things. Um, and then moving sort of further into the social history, you know, I like to sort of just get a sense of kind of where this person's from, where they lived throughout their life, and kind of how they ended up in San Diego if they're, you know, not from here. Um, one of the key parts of social history is really understanding their housing status, how secure is their housing, what resources might you need to link them to if they don't have um, secure housing. I also ask about, you know, who their social support is and whether or not they've told any of these people um, about their diagnosis. This is important um, just for their sort of overall well-being, but also has um, implications in terms of adherence. Um, asking, you know, who do they live with? Um, have they told the people with whom they live that they have HIV? And if not, kind of what is the strategy going to be if, if they're not going to disclose? Um, because patients trying to hide their medications, for example, from their roommate, um, that might have uh, an impact on their ability to adhere to their therapy. Um, and then, of course, substance use history is really important um, in the patients that I see. Uh, they're highly enriched with um, substance use disorders, particularly um, tobacco use, alcohol, and methamphetamine use is really prominent in San Diego. Um, so always asking about this. Any patient that reports a history of sobriety, I'm a very obviously congratulatory, but I also strongly recommend that they still meet with our substance use counselor just for sobriety maintenance um, since rates of relapse 
relapse are fairly high. Um, and we have an amazing substance use counselor in our clinic um, who uh, nobody ever regrets meeting with her or talking with her because she's so wonderful. Um, and so that's a really nice resource to have. Um, so those are kind of, you know, again, really fo focusing on kind of the psychosocial aspects of, of the patient's life, less so the medical um, aspects, though, of course, you want to get that information. Um, but in a, you know, patient who probably is otherwise healthy, I think that's where I'd spend most of the time. Yeah. Um, and we won't talk too much about the physical exam because I think we know that that's important and part of the visit. Um, so I thought we could jump to the labs, which can feel really overwhelming if folks pull up the guidelines and that big chart. Um, so I thought instead of just listing it, that we could kind of just talk generally about how you think about labs and how you approach them and if you have any tips for not missing <laughs> any of them. Yeah, absolutely. So um, really you don't need any lab tests back to start somebody on antiretroviral therapy. Um, and this is what we do when we're doing same day or rapid start. Um, all you need is a, a confirmatory HIV test. Um, in terms of the initial baseline labs, it can be very overwhelming. The thing that I highly recommend is if you have an electronic health record record that allows you to um, set up an ordering set for labs. Um, since we get the same initial set of labs on everybody, that makes things much easier as, as well as much quicker. Um, I kind of mm -hmm. think about it as sort of the HIV-specific labs that you get and then kind of the routine sort of general labs. Um, and so, of course, CD4 cell count, viral load, and genotype um, are, are, you know, the major um, HIV-specific labs that you want to get. Um, and then CBC, CMP, lipid profile. STI testing. Um, you're, of course, going to want to get all the viral hepatitis um, tests done to see if patients have any chronic infection or if they need um, vaccination. Um, and then, you know, any uh, patient of childbearing potential, you, of course, want to get a pregnancy test. Um, the one thing I do want to highlight in the labs is sort of what you don't have to get um, routinely. Um, and those are things like uh, Toxo IgG, CMV IgG, Serum Crag, etc. Those are things that we used to get sort of on all of our patients. Patients, and those are really um, only pertinent for patients who have very low CD4 cell count. So those I'm not ordering um, up front um, unless um, I, I know that their CD4 cell count is low. Yeah. Um, so you're going to take all this information from your patient. We're synthesizing and making a plan. I know that there are people listening who are just going to say, skip to the part where you start Big Tarvi. I generally do not say trade names on the show. The generic would be Bictagravir, M-Tricytabine, Tenofovir, Alafenamide, or TAF. I did want to mention it here just because I think it's so well known as Bictarvi. Um, but instead of doing the typical HIV lecture stop where we go through the different classes of ART, I thought instead you could emphasize what you consider prior to starting treatment and what might impact you to prescribe a atypical regimen, um, anything that sort of influences your choice of or uh, drug. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I do think it matters if you're starting kind of same day or rapid start before you get all of the labs back versus you have all of the lab data back. Um, both the DHHS and IASU USA guidelines all recommend starting uh, initially with an integrase inhibitor um, with one or two um, nukes. Um, if you are starting um, same day before you have the labs back, that means you're not going to have your hepatitis B serologies back to know if a patient has hepatitis B 
be immunity or chronic infection. Um, you also won't have your genotype back, which is important in terms of um, choosing an initial regimen. Um, and so if you don't have those uh, pieces of information, you're going to want to start with a regimen that has what we call a high genetic barrier to resistance, meaning if you miss a dose or two, we don't necessarily tell patients this all the time, but that it's going to be more forgiving um, in terms of developing uh, resistance. And then you're also going to want to pick a regimen that has um, activity against chronic hepatitis B in case the patient does have chronic hepatitis B. And so for same-day starts, um, you know, Bictegravir, FTC, TAF, as you mentioned, um, would be a great option. Otherwise, Dolutegravir with two nukes would be an option. And then the third option would be a, a boosted Darunavir regimen with, with two nukes. Um, and so those would be, you know, if I didn't have all this information, what I would be thinking about. Um, the Bictegravir FTC TAF is nice because it comes as a single tablet regimen. The one little kind of caveat and piece of encouragement that I'll give to all your learners out there is that the HIV meds are really difficult to learn because they have so many yeah. names. They have <laughs> the generic name, the brand name, the three-letter name, and the fixed-dose combination name. Um, and so don't get discouraged um, if you're like trying to remember them and it's like an alphabet soup. Um, it does just take time and practice. It, I find that it is helpful to know the brand names, even though you know we're not supposed mm -hmm. to say them, um, because that's what the patients know. And a lot of clinics will have um, charts with the names of the medications and pictures, and often you know showing patients the pictures and asking them, "Have you ever been on this one or that one?" Um, can be helpful because the names are are um, very challenging. Yeah, I definitely have that chart. <laughs> I know we're thinking about the same one. Yeah. Um, I also, I think for me as a fellow, when I picked up patients early in the year, I just started writing out their regimens. Like when you go back and just write it, it seems excessive, but like with the names and the abbreviations and over time, it just gets more natural. Um, but yeah, there's a <laughs> couple I, different ways. I tell ways. my fellows, you know, each clinic pick one antiretroviral regimen or even one antiretroviral drug that you're going to learn about it and add it to your table of, mm. you know, mechanism of action, side effects, um, common resistance mutations. And so you build that table over time and you, you know, take a regimen that your patient was on so that you're more likely to sort of remember and understand it and you build that table over time. But it, but it does take time and practice and repetition. Yeah. Um, and then I thought we could mention the clinical scenarios where you might delay starting ART. Yeah, you know, the, the good news is kind of there's not too many scenarios where you should yeah. really, you know, delay therapy. I think the question should always be if a patient's not on therapy, or the question to yourself should be, why is this patient not on therapy? The main mm -hmm. reason why I delay therapy is because the patient tells me that they no way in hell they're going to take the medication. Yeah. And so there I start to, you know, explore barriers and, you know, sort of what are what are the issues surrounding um, taking medications. Um, but, you know, there's two opportunistic infections where um, it could actually be dangerous to start antiretroviral therapy sooner rather than later. The two coming to mind are cryptococcal meningitis and um, TB meningitis. And that's because if you develop iris, immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, which can happen in the setting of an opportunistic uh, infection, followed by initiation of antiretroviral, uh, initiation of antiretrovirals with, you know, a really sort of uh, waking up of the immune system, um, that can cause a lot of inflammation in an enclosed space like the brain. Um, and so for crypto meningitis and TB meningitis, that's one where I want to kind of see a good clinical response um, to that infection before starting antiretroviral therapy. 
Yeah. And generally, if they're coming to clinic, they probably don't have those things, which is helpful. But it might come up in the inpatient setting. One thing I really wanted to hear your thoughts on were the use of uh, two drug ART regimens. Who's the right person to use it? Are you using it often or not really? Um, any, Any thoughts yeah, you know, I think um, sort of a, a mantra that we love in ID is less is more. And so two drug regimens, I think, are, are really nice from that perspective, but also from, you know, the patient perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, even if a patient's taking one pill once a day, if it has three medications within it, um, that can be a lot for the medication, both physically and psychologically. So um, we do have some two drug regi- uh, regimens, um, Dolutegravir 3TC or Dolutegravir Lamivudine comes co-formulated um, trade name Nevada. Paul Sachs is going to kill me if he hears me say that. Um, <laughs> but this is the only two-drug regimen uh, that's approved for treatment-naive patients. Um, uh, it was, you know, proved to be efficacious in the Gemini trials. Um, I'm not using this a ton in treatment-naive patients uh, because there's a couple of caveats and um, exclusion criteria for patients where you wouldn't want to use this regimen. Um, primarily, patients with a viral of greater than five hundred thousand. Um, you wouldn't want to use this regimen. So if you're doing same day start, you're not going to have the viral load back yet. And so you wouldn't want to start this regimen in that setting. Um, also, this regimen doesn't have full activity against hepatitis B with no tenofovir. So you wouldn't use this for somebody who had chronic um, HBV infection. Um, similarly, you'd need the genotype back um, to make sure the patient didn't have like an M184V mutation um, or any integrase um, resistance. And then in the trials, it showed that uh, patients who had a low CD4 cell count actually did a little bit worse. So I wouldn't use this regimen um, uh, in somebody with a very low CD4 cell count. Um, The other thing that gives me a little bit of pause about this regimen is that it's not as robust as a three-drug regimen with tenofovir with respect to uh, barrier to resistance. And so when I'm first meeting a patient, I, I might not know them and sort of have a sense of, you know, is adherence going to be an issue for them? So um, often what I'll do is I'll start Bictagravir FTC TAF and sort of get to know them, see that they're, you know, really adherent and and easily suppressed, and then I might switch them um, to this regimen. So that's um, the main two-drug regimen that we have, at least for treatment-naive patients. The other regimen I wanted to mention that's not for treatment-naive patients but um, could be used in a switch um, is the long-acting injectable Cabotegravir, which is an integrase inhibitor um, paired with long-acting injectable ropivirine. Um, and the brand name for this is uh, Cabanuva. Um, so this is a really cool regimen. It's two drugs, of course, um, and it's the first approved long-acting injectable antiretroviral regimen for patients living with HIV. Um, efficacy was uh, very well proven in the ATLAS trials. Um, Caveats for this regimen, like Dolutegravir 3TC, this regimen doesn't have any activity um, against patients with chronic hepatitis B. And again, patients have to be suppressed on an oral three or four drug regimen before switching over to this regimen. Um, the injections are given every four weeks, um, and you have to do a four-week oral lead-in with oral cabotegravir and oral ropivirine before switching over to the injectable formulation. So who am I thinking about using this regimen? 
regimen in. It's not for patients who really struggle with adherence or have, you know, high no-show rates to clinic visits. Um, it's for the patient who has what I call pill fatigue. You know, they take their medication every day, they've always been suppressed, but they're just tired of taking a pill every day. Maybe it's because, mm -hmm. you know, it reminds them that they have HIV every day and they don't like that daily reminder. Um, but they always come to their clinic appointments. And the reason why I'm kind of, you know, emphasizing that it's really that sort of select patient population is that this regimen has a very, very long half-life with levels that can be found, you know, six to 12 months after the patients received their last injection. And so if you have a patient who's on this regimen, long-acting injectable therapy, and they miss an injection, and they, you know, miss a second injection, they don't get any oral bridge medication, antiretrovirals to bridge them to their next injection, they're going to have sub-therapeutic level of antiretroviral, which then their HIV could replicate and become resistant to. So a lot of people might think, oh, this is great for, you know, a patient that isn't very adherent, but it's a very specific type of adherence issue, and particularly with that pill burden issue um, or pill fatigue issue. Um, but for patients who no-show, this isn't going to be a great regimen. Yeah. Um, so I saved the best part for last, and really the most valuable part. I wanted to hear your tips and advice for how to approach talking to your patient about coping with a diagnosis or other sort of counseling tips on adherence or weight gain, because um, that's obviously the most nuanced of anything that we've talked about today. And I think everyone would benefit from advice. I, I would benefit from advice. This is, this is very, very <laughs> difficult. And this is something that, you know, over years and years of, of practice, um, you, you work on and, and improve. I think in terms of helping patients cope with their diagnosis, um, I, I think it's important for everyone to just acknowledge and understand that this isn't something that's going to be achieved in that first visit. It's not the patient's going to walk out and be, you know, totally fine and everything's hunky-dory. Um, it's an mm -hmm. ongoing process. Um, I try to normalize that newly diagnosed patients, you know, feel depressed, anxious, angry, all sorts of emotions because the patient that who's newly diagnosed that I'm sitting across the um, clinic in the clinic from, you know, they, they have these large range of emotions that can be, you know, difficult to manage. Um, and so, you know, I try to help them and normalize that. Um, I try to, as I mentioned before, really reassure them that, I'm there to do everything I can, as is everybody else in the clinic. Uh, people who are in HIV care tend to be very um, passionate patient advocates, and so I think that really comes across um, to our patients and can be helpful. Um, you know, uh, emphasizing kind of the, the life expectancy and the U equals U in terms of trying to decrease stigma. If people are interested in, you know, having children, I, I tell them you can do that, and we encourage that. Um, letting them sort of, you know, know about the resources that we have, you know, if they are having a hard time coping, our social workers, our um, mental health counselors. Um, and then, you know, understanding their social support or lack of social support, and they, if they don't have much, um, you know, referring them to community-based organizations like our LGBTQ Center. Um, we have a wonderful organization in San Diego for women living with HIV um, and getting them linked in with those services. So that's, you know, that's an ongoing process and really kind of the art of medicine and, and really 
developing that patient-physician rapport um, and relationship. And I think it's also, you know, one of the most rewarding experiences. I've had patients who, you know, I, I saw them five, six years ago when they were newly diagnosed and they thought mm-hmm. that their life was over and that, you know, there was no reason to live. Um, and we kind of go through all of that together. And now, you know, they come back to clinic, they give me a hug, they're, you know, HIV advocate in the community. Um, it's just so wonderful to see. Um, and then, you know, in terms of some of these, you know, other issues of adherence and um, issues around weight gain, which is really big kind of um, in the field of HIV right now, particularly with our second generation integrase inhibitors, um, you know, depending on kind of how the patient is coping and dealing and, and how that first visit goes, I do kind of work those themes in over the first few visits. Um, And I think it really is important. And um, what I love about primary care is that so much of your health can really be improved through non-medical interventions like diet and exercise. Um, And so I sort of start talking about that kind of from day one, day two, to really, you know, help people and empower people. We, you know, have a dietitian that I have all of my patients see um, and help strategize, you know, an exercise plan, a fitness plan, um, which really just, you know, gives power to people to really help um, improve their sort of overall health, but then overall well-being as well. Yeah. Um. Well, we covered a lot. I like to end by asking you if there's anything else that you want to mention or that maybe we missed along the way. I, I think we, we covered a ton. There's <laughs> always so much that you can talk about. Um, and, and I'm sure that probably in future episodes, you'll also cover. I think the one thing I'll just say to maybe any trainings out there is that HIV medicine is really a wonderful area within ID um, to consider a career you get to do wonderful, amazing patient advocacy work, primary care, developing continuity and and longstanding relationships with patients. Um, And then sort of the intellectual stimulation in terms of um, new developments in antiretrovirals and side effects and and managing difficult resistance cases and opportunistic infections um, is really interesting. Um, And so it really has kind of the best of all worlds. I think clearly I'm biased, but um, it (laughs) it really is such a a wonderful and very, um, very rewarding area area to work. Um, And I think that's really important, particularly in times where, you know, rates of burnout are so high and things like that. I think it's really important to find meaning in the work that you do. Um, And working, you know, with this patient population and with colleagues who are just as passionate as about working with this patient population and helping this patient population um, is just so inspiring. I just love coming to work every day. So hopefully people will consider uh, HIV medicine uh, for their future career. I love it. What a great way to end. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. I had a great time. Thanks so much for having me and just want to give you major kudos for this incredible (laughs) podcast. Um, I advertise it as much as I can on Twitter because it is uh, really revolutionary and really one of the greatest things to be happening um, in ID right now. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. A huge thank you to Darcy for joining us today. I cannot wait to share more from our Fresh Start HIV Summer Series. And in fact, I'm so excited that I'll be releasing these next few episodes weekly instead of every two weeks. 
Yay. Um, Febrilepodcast.com is the website where you can find consult notes, links to references, and our collection of infographics. You can also find or contact Febrile on Twitter, Instagram, the website, or email if you have suggestions, topics, or want to get involved. So stay safe, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>